You're listening to the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT podcast. I'm your host and curator, Rabbi Aprom Kipolevich, and I hope you enjoy this episode. You've bought your tickets. The ushers are about to open the doors. Yes, the projection has smicha is about to start. But first, you've heard of me on this platform touting NRS, a great company whose many dedicated employees I get to see in action. NRS Pay has recently launched its new cost-cutting program called Cash Discount. The way it works is any vendor using NRS Pay Cash Discount has their sale register tabulating automatically a dual pricing, which offers customers a choice of a cash payment, which could result in up to a 4% discount over swiping their card. If your business meets the $18,000 a month threshold, there's absolutely no monthly fee to incur. NRS Pay Cash Discount makes it less expensive to accept credit cards, so you'll save money while helping your customers save at the same time. NRS is offering a time-limited deal right now on this state-of-the-art system. You'll get a free card reader with zero hidden fees, no long-term contract, and no early termination fee, which means you can switch your processing plan without penalty. NRS Pay is a proud part of the IDT Corporation that I've been associated with for over 10 years and has integrity built into its corporate DNA. I know its founder and officers and salespeople, and they truly stand by their product and will help you with live stateside-based customer service on any issue or question. Check nrspay.com for more information or call 833-289-2767. And now here's the projectionist, Hasmicha. Enjoy. Clear the aisles, the projectionist, Hasmicha. Hi, I'm here with Yitzhak Kolakowski. The blockbusters are back after covid has sort of crushed the whole idea of going to the movies last weekend. People ran to the movies again. Some people even went for double features. They went to see Greta Gerwig's incredible feminist super fantasy called the Barbie movie. Then afterwards, they <laughs> took a break and went to see Christopher Nolan's three-hour incredible biopic of J. Robert Oppenheimer, entitled just Oppenheimer. Everyone's saying this summer is the summer of Barbenheimer. Everybody is saying, oh, these are two great movies, and now people are back again. So, on the urging of my good friend, it's we decided that projectionist Hasmicha is going to do their own old, old version of Barbie Oppenheimer, where we are going to talk about J. Uh, Robert Oppenheimer being played by the incomparable Hume Cronin, uh, a film that is was pretty much ignored for, for many, many years, but is available for free on the Internet Archive and on YouTube. First, let's talk silliness. Let's talk about Barbie. You have a doll who is living in a doll land and is affected by the way their owners are playing with them, somehow is able to enter the real world. And again, it's the typical fish out of water, the dissonance type of situation and she is accompanied by accompanied by a goofball played by the ken played by ryan gosling it makes me think of the brady bunch movie that was back in the 90s was like kind of the fish out of water i will just tell you that someone who i believe is probably the greatest television personality uh and that with in terms of uh, a variety television personality and that means red skelton and Danny Kay and Milton Burrow and Benny and Hope really have to take a backseat. And that is to the incomparable, incredible Carol Burnett. Carol Burnett did a, a, a skit 
it is available. You can find it on YouTube for free. It's 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 a skit that I think it was done in maybe the first or second year of the program. And it probably has more laughs in it than the whole Barbie film. It's a skit about a little girl who has a Barbie. Mattel, obviously, they were worried about Mattel deciding to sue them. But this is really like a Mad Magazine type of little shtick where a little girl who is playing with her dolls and then the camera shifts to the dolls and the dolls, of course, are Carol. Carol is Barbie and Harvey Corman is not Ken, but Ben. And they are on this bed and the the jokes are about Ken is obviously just desirous of Barbie. And Barbary is 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 clearly a little bit of a strumpet herself. There's a there's jokes about her being bendable. There's jokes about Ken peeking when her, her clothes get changed. There's jokes about the amount of clothing that she has, um, even though she doesn't have a certain type of outfit. There are uh, intimations about you know how she wants something more than just Ken. The dynamism in the skit is that the little girl then brings in a GI, not GI Joe, but GI Jack. And that's, he's, that's played by Lyle Wagner. And of course, Barbary does not want to get out of bed when she is next to GI Jack. And again, it's this idea of a doll being a plaything, but also clearly in the form of a real live human with human desires. And Carol does a great job indicating the sort of lasciviousness that lies beneath the whole Barbie phenomena. Lyle Wagner does a great job as G.I. Joe, who has nothing on his mind except serving America an apple pie, despite what Barbie wants from him. There's a joke about uh, Ken not having served in the army because of his flat feet. Barbie is wearing heels. Barbie's legs bend when she uh, when she tries to hug uh, G.I. Jack and really in five minutes really does a number on Barbie and kids that play with the with these dolls. And of course, the ending spoiler, uh, they bring in a fourth doll that grandma has brought to the little girl and the fourth doll played by Vicky Lawrence, who by when this skit was done had not yet really developed her acting chops. And she just is lying there. And when they say hello to her, when she says that she is the Betsy Wetsy doll, they all three of them run out of the bed. So you have your um, typical late 1960s humor, a little bit edgy. And there you have, I think, more than enough about uh, the Barbie phenomena. What would imagining Barbie and Ken they say Ryan Gosling stole this movie. Uh, I, I recommend our listeners check out Harvey as Ken. I think he does. I think he does a, a quite a, a quite a nice job there. And really, this is really an excuse for me to talk about Carol, because I think that not only was she so gracious as this scene indicates, her immense talent, but also her graciousness. One of the things that um, you know, Sid Caesar. Uh, was accused of, despite his enormous, enormous talent, was the fact that his ego was was fantastically large. Uh, he had the greatest writers for him in what was considered the greatest variety skit program in television history. 
But I only know that Sid Caesar, after his show was taken out, was off the air when he was doing so many uh, guest starring on shows like Carol Burnett and other programs. Although you could see how talented he was. You can see what he was able to do. You also saw that you never really were able to see him as an accepting, giving, relatable human being. Carol could do any voice, any shtick, whether playing mousy or sexy, playing silly, brilliant, stupid, English, French, Russian, anything you ask her to do, she was able to do and deliver it. She never delivered less than a B-plus performance in any of the skits that she did. But the main thing I really want to stress about, and especially as this is a period that Yitzhak and myself We think about how the world can be better, how we could perhaps our interpersonal relationships could be elevated. And I would like to suggest, not by going to see Barbie and hearing the the new feminist claptrap or the old feminist claptrap again, but rather by just watching Carol. Watch Carol in her openings. I haven't seen any host of a program relate to the audience in as honest and real way as what she does. And of course, this started, I think, as just sort of like a lark, as an idea. And when, you know, her husband, Joe Hamilton, others, they saw what was going on, they figured to append it to the to the program. Now, of course, the program, just like many programs in, in the mid-1960s and afterwards, were a combination of live and taped performances. The audience that you see and that's laughing and clapping aren't watching the same program that we were at home. They're watching parts of it, but other parts of it were, were, were taped in different times during the week and then stitched together. And, and Carol opened the lights and spoke to them and she was quick on her feet. She was able to answer questions with humor, with sometimes brilliant comebacks, but more often than not, with empathy, with understanding, with connections, with actual being shocked, laughing, and her infectious laugh, her ability to to denigrate herself, to put herself down, to be herself, to be a person, and to accept the love and and presence of of the audience. I really believe Yitzchak that that if that she can be a Musser schmooze, as we say, for, for everyone. How is someone who is already elevated and, 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 and loved and almost worshipped, how can they show themselves to be honestly just a, a person of the people? So often throughout the program, not just in the opening, she reveals herself to be starstruck when there's someone of such great talent. You can see also her her eagerness to highlight performers in the mid to late 60s who were Black, Hispanic, and others to really give them a chance to shine. And none of it was done with hitting yourself over the head with it. There were a couple of skits where she, especially a famous one that she did with Sammy Davis Jr., where uh, she indicated the, the ugliness of liberal racism, where someone who thinks that they are giving to to the blacks and 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 wanting to help them is really guilty of of racism. It's a classic skit, 
But again, even if all you see from Carol are those openings, but it's a wonderful time machine if you want to see the hairstyles, the attitudes, even the, 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 you can see children on the cusp of, of what was that late 60s and 70s wildness period, but still having the respect and, and, and care, the, especially in the presence they would give to Carol. Most of them were connected to the famous character that she created up on the Gary Moore show, which was the charwoman. And that was what she would do. Uh, she could really match Keaton and Chaplin in some ways for the pantomime that she did, because she spent the first part of the charwoman mute. Uh, her willingness to to be able to display herself as an ugly duckling, and yet, incredibly, when she was supposed to play a starlet, whether it was you know her her over the top Mae West or Sonia Henney. She just was able to bring the house down. Uh, many have compared her to Lucille Ball. And she herself considered Lucy a pioneer and someone that really began the idea that a woman could be funny and in control in Hollywood. But she never controlled things with the iron fist or with the the way Lucy did in Desilu. It, it seems like she was always a an ensemble person. The, the friendships that she had with Jim Neighbors, with Julie Andrews, they seem to be really so sincere. And even what's considered, I guess, a little kitschy, the way at the end of the program, when Carol would sign the book. And you sort of figure that Carol probably has somewhere in her house a number of these autograph books. And you can tell that whether it was Vincent Price, who was on the show probably dozens of times, or it was uh, Jimmy Stewart or any one of her uh, of, of her heroes. People wanted to be on her program because she welcomed them. She highlighted them. She gave them a chance to shine. In 1967, when she began her program, there were dozens of variety shows. And she outlasted them all. She was the last. And it, it really hasn't come back. One of the ways that you know you see Carol's great big-heartedness was her picking Vicky Lawrence out of a you know a junior talent contest because of you know she looked like Carol to play in a the skits which again I think is probably the weakest of the program's history is the Sis and Me where Carol plays a sort of harried housewife married to uh, Harvey Corman. Uh, every one of those skits ends with the door slamming in someone's face and ending in a potted plant. But Vicki Lawrence started off as a, as a novice, really, and, and she gave Vicki a chance not only to sing, and of course, uh, Vicki had a number one hit with the, the Night the Lights Went Out in Georgia, but she also got a chance to really do her chops in acting. The Mama's family, you know, Eunice and Mama, uh, Vicki was able, you know, to play this uh, harridan of a of a mother. And Carol really was able to capture in those skits real pathos, real tragedy. And it was a way that many Southern families looked at it and, and saw their own foibles and issues really reflected. After Carol's show ended, 
you could find her on a number of programs. She did. They did try to make another Carol Burnett type of show. But again, you know, times had really ended. But whenever she showed up, she wasn't like Sid Caesar or Mel Brooks, for that matter, who was basically just playing it for as as wide and broad as possible. She wanted to be part of that character. When she played Jamie's mother in Mad About You, she played it, you know, for humor, but she played it as a character. She wasn't just there uh, as an old television icon, to, uh, you know, in order to get laughs. She wanted to be part of the the program. The other only other actress that I think that comes close uh, would probably be two of them would be the two great SCTV actresses, Catherine O'Hara and Andrea Martin. Those two are, are in many ways the two Yorsham, I think, of Carol. The other one would probably be Tracy Ullman. And Tracy Ullman, I think, could probably, you know, in many ways, she is more talented than Carol. Tracy Ullman could do more voices, more accents, more things. But Tracy is a is a, is an acquired taste. I would say the four of them are probably, you know, you know, Carol as the queen, uh, Tracy as sort of the alt the, the new queen. And I would say in terms of the students who really, in many ways, were able to do a lot of the same things that Carol did, but not with the same sort of grace, you know, Andrew Martin and Catherine O'Hara. You might remember, Yitzhak, that The Simpsons started on the Tracy Ullman show. The Simpsons started as a uh, a, a cartoon sort of uh, in-between skits. Of the That's tra- pretty much all I remember from the Tracy Ullman show. <laughs> I remember, I remember watching it, and I remember some of the skits. But I, I just, I, I, as a kid, I, The Simpsons is what we were looking forward. Well, to. Dan Castellano was a regular on Tracy Ullman, and and therefore it was, it made sense that Dan should use his voice for The Simpsons. And the same thing was true with Julie Kavner. Julie Kavner was a regular on many of the skits that she did with Tracy. But I, I really believe Carol is the is 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 the progenitor. Of that. And I think it's, I think the fact that so many of the old programs have been forgotten and you can't find them. And Carol continues to be available on streaming services everywhere really indicates that there is something, there's a quality to her that has a, a timeless aspect to it. And again, if there's one thing about being funny, being talented, but also being human, relatable, being gracious, and I think that's something that when we see people that have that, I think we could, it could bring that out within us. So you talk, you, that's, that's my Barbie, <laughs> my Barbie excuse to really talk about the great unparalleled Carol Burnett. So Yitzchak, uh, we can't forget the fact that we are thinking about the Horbin, a destruction, a complete decimation of a city, a community and a country. And this is what we are trying to sort of make real to ourselves. It's probably true, though, that when we think of Horbin, we think, of course, of Hiroshima Nagasaki, the ultimate definition of Horbin. Well, I, I remember in, in college, the dean of my college where I attended, Rabbi uh, Dr. Sokol, he encouraged us to read Homer's Iliad and the description of sacking of Troy to be somewhat of a taste of, you know, and of what it was like 
to see the a Horbin of of a city in ancient times. But I think really what it really uh, what what this underscores is the human terrible loss of any city, whether it's the city of Troy, whether it's Shiloh, whether it's Yerushalayim, and part of what what perhaps is something we need to do is to comprehend what this means of a of, of the death and destruction. Hollywood decides in 1947, as you've informed me, to really have a film that documented the Manhattan Project and featuring a number of actual historical personages. Yeah, the story goes was that Donna Reed was the one who actually came up with the idea for this movie. And it was uh, President Truman who came up with the title to the movie, which was the beginning or the end, which when I remember as a kid seeing that in the TV listings Playing on TCM, it, it it brought it got my attention because it reminded me of a movie we spoke about a few weeks ago from Bird Eye Gordon, The Beginning of the End. So I I watched this movie as as a youth, and I watched it over again today, actually, in preparation for the podcast. And it it, it it's an interesting movie because at, at that time in history was kind of a strange time for film post war. You know, there was a, a lot of things were, were very different at that time, not yet, you know, settled into what developed in the 50s. But this had very much, to me, a Tom of a 50s, almost, you know, sci-fi movie, even though it was a science fact movie. But a lot of the things that are presented there with the scientists and all the machines and radiation and the bomb and the actors who were in it. You know, Brian Dunleavy was in a lot of those movies. And he was here, and and many other actors. So, right, and it was it was directed by pretty much an A list director, Norman Tarog, and you also had the um, sort of the narrator and the person who plays the inventor of the bomb, uh, J. Robert Oppenheimer, who was you know uh, the star of this other film, was Hume Cronin, and Hume Cronin was. At that time, you know, at the peak of his powers, he was a person who, uh, you know, we we talked about him as in brute force. Uh, you know, playing the sadistic Captain Muncie and Hitchcock's Shadow of a Doubt. So this was really Hume Cronin's time to play the characters and to sort of be uh, this chameleon-like actor who could play anything. How does how does Hume Cronin do in in portraying Oppenheimer in this film? I, I think he did a good job. And the interesting thing is, I think you showed me that there was a picture of of Cronin sitting with with Oppenheimer. And even though some people said they don't really look alike, I think he kind of captured the look pretty well. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know enough about Oppenheimer's mannerisms or anything to say how much he captured his actual character very well or not. But as opposed to, you know, the, the actor they had playing FDR certainly looked and acted like FDR. But FDR is kind of pretty easy to... I think everybody was imitating him by that time. The guy, he'd been president for so many, so long since 1933. Yeah. So, so many, everybody had heard his voice every single Saturday afternoon. And they, and they didn't, they didn't hide his, his handicap here. The, the producers actually wanted Lionel Barrymore to play him, but because every single character sort of, they needed permission from the family, especially those that were alive. The families, the Roosevelt family, did not want Barrymore playing FDR because Barrymore had made public that he had supported Dewey in the, in the forty four election. So um, Barrymore was was canceled out of playing this role. 
But you said the guy who, the person who played it, although he might not have been wheelchair bound himself, he basically vindicated himself pretty well playing a, a very public figure. I think so. And, uh, you know, the, that Ludwig Stossel playing Einstein, I don't think that was as good. And it was kind of overplayed. There's, you know, this one, one scene with Einstein where they're approaching him and asking him to come and help them with this project. And uh, the Manhattan Project, of course, Yeah, before they came up with the name already and they approached him, you know, saying, you know, it's all based on your theory of of matter and energy being the same thing. And he said, oh, you can't put it all on me. And this was again, this was kind of along the lines of, I think, a movie we discussed called uh, It's a It's a Big Country. And, you know, where we talk about the melting pot of America, Einstein is presented as saying, all these different scientists who contributed to the advances of the... Yes, many of them, of course, were European refugees who escaped the Nazis, and because of that, uh, they could work for us in order to produce this bomb. But each, each one, they, he had to name, you know, this one was an Englishman, and, and, you know, and, and Curie was, was, was Polish, and, and uh, Enrico Fermi, who is another character who plays prominently, probably more prominently than either Oppenheimer or Einstein, you know, was, was Italian. So like he's, and then he said, you know, you can't blame this all on me. And then they, they play him, you know, what I understand Einstein wasn't a particularly humble person, but they, in the, in the show, they, they present him as rather humble saying, you know, they ask, could you come talk to the president? He's like, well, I don't, I don't know Mr. Roosevelt so well. And then they said, well, I'm sure that the president knows you, sir. And then he said, well, maybe it'll be more polite if I write a, write a letter. Really, what's interesting, just, you know, besides the fact that the, the film featured living personages being played by various Hollywood character actors, it also, the framing device of the film was quite unusual, I think. The idea that this was, you know, it's sort of narrated by uh, the Oppenheimer character who d- describes the fact that, this film is going to be placed in a time capsule to be open for 500 years in the future. It actually opens with a newsreel, you know, being presented. MGM has a newsreel and the newsreel is showing the time capsule being placed into its holding place somewhere in the Redwood Forest. And, you know, saying that, you know, these trees have been around for thousands of years and have seen the rise and fall of various empires. And now here is where we're going to place this time capsule to be opened in the year 2447 you know 500 years in the future and then it presents this is the film that the people of the 25th century are about to see and then after the opening credits then you have hume cronin playing oppenheimer introducing the show um you know a rather pensive and that, of course, aligns with what the whole Christopher Nolan film is about, yeah. which is about Oppenheimer's angst in terms of, you know, you know as he quote the Baba Gavita, in terms of now the destroyer of worlds has been unleashed. So you, so you mentioned to me off pod that this sort of Hindu reference is ironic, considering the fact that Oppenheimer is a Jew. And I think was he, he was born in Europe, wasn't he? I, I, I think he was born in America, Oppenheimer, but he was raised to be an, an atheist i think he was raised with the society for ethical humanism or something like that, or ethical culture and he and they he was very embarrassed of his jewish roots both of his parents were jewish to the point where at that time julius was considered a jewish name that's why he was j robert oppenheimer you know to 
not put any emphasis on, on his name, Julius. But also uh, along those lines, they said that later in his life, you know, being dissatisfied, being raised in a very strictly atheistic atmosphere. And before that time of when he was involved in the Manhattan Project, as many Jewish people of, you know, with, with a secular background who don't have any ex- exposure to Yiddishkeit, they, he, I think he did it, you know, earlier than it became much more popular in the 60s or 70s to learn about Buddhism and Hinduism and other Eastern religions. He actually uh, studied in Germany, you know. He actually went to the University of Göttingen in Germany, and, I, and that's where he got his PhD from. You know, he's clearly a, a genius, and, uh, you know, it's, it's sometimes difficult to show geniuses on films. I know, again, the film you're talking about, the beginning or the end, it has a number of other characters in it besides the scientists. And some of them, of course, are created just for the film. There were, there were these two couples that are presented. One was a scientist and his wife. And the other one was a soldier and his fiance. And they, they were both, you know, they, we followed them through pretty much the whole story. And they were both, you know, there just before the bomb was going to be dropped. So it was, uh, and, and the, the one scientist, he places his hand into the bomb and saves the whole thing from blowing up and saves 40,000 soldiers because he didn't, uh, he himself died because of that. He martyred himself. That story, uh, apparently it was just a made up story for the, for the movie. But, uh, I think, as I mentioned, the idea of making this full circle around of things that are, are in dispute, a pretty major part of this movie, uh, was the idea that America dropped leaflets for 10 days before the bombing of Hiroshima on actually 10 different cities because they, they wanted to be a surprise, which city telling the people you're not our enemies, uh, if you, you know, that we have a weapon that is uh, like nothing ever seen before. And of course, what, what, would, the, what would have been the purpose of the leaflets, Yitzchuk? To to evacuate, to move out of to warn the people to evacuate because the purpose of dropping the bomb was to end the war and save as many lives as possible by ending the war. That's already expressed, you know, by how Truman is presented in the movie. And Truman was, you know, very, like I said, very heavily involved in this movie. So therefore, they presented this that they dropped these leaflets all over Japan, various cities, warning. That this is coming. This is, you know, we, we want, you know, we want to save your lives, evacuate now because, you know, it's something very serious is going to happen. Unlike what we're hearing about uh, this new film, uh, Christopher Nolan's film, that really posits the, you know, the, the American politicians as the villains in many ways, uh, this film pretty much, you know, is, is, a, is a propaganda piece in the sense that America, are, the American scientists and the officers are all very noble. We do see some inner, you know, fighting. There's one scene where the, the one scientist who dies at the end, they're all about to, to drink a toast and drink some champagne, and he refuses. He doesn't want to drink it. He refuses to celebrate when they actually, you know, synthesize plutonium for the first time. And, and then there's another scene there's once they did that, there were a group of scientists who were Quakers and they all asked, they said, we, this is now a munitions project and no longer a scientific project. So we have to, 
excuse ourselves and so the and film they, does they, give the film that. does give some voice to the pacifist the pacifist movement in the United States and it does yeah. indicate the fact that in a respectful way so the film has an aspect of thoughtfulness it isn't just a some something like uh, the propaganda pieces that were being commissioned during World War II no it's not it's not it's not a big rah 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 but it is saying we had to do this we had no choice we saved lives doing this and one of the lines that's very controversial was that they said, you know, we 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 drop these leaflets for ten days. That's ten days more warning than we got at Pearl Harbor, you know. And that was one of the things that a lot of people criticized about this movie. But and and then I read, through, you know, throughout, you know, after hearing about this, and remember seeing the movie as a as a, a student, I think still in high school, bringing up this question, and some of my teachers doubting whether or not this was true, and even in my research for this podcast, finding that a lot of people claim that there never were any leaflets dropped. And a, a fascinating thing that I saw today was that Glenn Beck has a museum of American history. He actually has, because like we said, the leaflets were dropped on 10 different cities. I don't think, I don't know if there are any leaflets that are left from Hiroshima or Nagasaki themselves, but there's, he had, and he showed uh, with his exhibit, two actual leaflets that were dropped in Japanese warning the people to evacuate. So it actually was a historical fact that these leaflets were dropped, that the warning was made. So so let me play Nippon advocate here for a second and say that even though there was no warning to Pearl Harbor, the the enormity of a uh, of a of an atomic bomb versus an, a sneak attack on a military base in Hawaii, you can't really compare them. And really, let's think about it. You know, this was a country that is a very it's it's a very different country than the United States to expect the residents of two major cities to just pick up and just get to the hills. It's 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 somewhat difficult to to think that they would do that. You know, we know that the world has changed. We know that the the after effects of of this of the radiation, the bomb, the the fear and the nuclear arms race, it really was the dawning of a whole new world. I, I can imagine that even if Glenn Beck is correct, there doesn't that doesn't necessarily assuage a lot of the pain of what the Japanese civilians had to suffer. It's one thing if you have, you know, you might read books about Hitler's willing executioners. Does that mean the Japanese people were all, should they be considered uh, combatants in this in this way, that they should be pulverized you know, beyond recognition by you know by by the splitting of the atom i don't know you can understand what oppenheimer was going through and i guess the oppenheimer in the film the hume crony character does he exhibit any of what we know later uh was oppenheimer's misgivings you know a number of years later do you see any of yeah, that in the film yeah because I mean, he again he is presented there at the at Los Alamos when the first bomb yeah. is detonated, and he he certainly appears to be very very uncomfortable. So the film has a certain amount, as we say, the certain amount of nuance. So basically, what you're saying it's like is as though you know if you don't want to spend the three hours and who knows how much money it is on these tickets to go, it's a fascinating way to see another early take of Hollywood presenting us this very very important story. And I think it's part of the reason why it's like, although, again, you know, we're talking about old films. I think part of the reason why so many people are fascinated with this is because 
it isn't just that it's a Chris Nolan film and it's three hours long. It's that you know, we, we realize how central this event is, how, 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 as you said, it's not only amazing, but it's life-changing, life-altering to the point that one can almost think in, in messianic terms. We talk about the Horbin, right? But this is sort of like Shisha Alpe Shana Havi Alma, the Chad Khruv. You know, yeah. you have you have the world basically advancing. There is slaughter and wars. This is more than just slaughter. This is complete annihilation. This is pulverizing. Yeah, you do you do see not only the cloud, but then you see the plane flying over and seeing all the the houses and buildings on fire, and and they're you know they're they're expressing a fear that this. If there's another war, that's going to be the whole world is going to be on fire like that, and it's a it's a tremendous, tremendous source of fear. Well, yes, I think it's definitely worth checking out, and I I would also recommend, you know, although people are saying that it's a wonderful read, the American Prometheus, which is the source material for Christopher Nolan's book about J. Robert Oppenheimer. Uh, one could also read about uh, Hiroshima, the brilliant, brilliant short piece of reportage written by John Hersey, which he wrote originally, I believe, as a piece in The New Yorker, which eventually he turned into a sort of a uh, novella-sized book called Hiroshima. And I think that that is also something where, I don't know if John Hersey has ever written you know, anything more moving than that. We are in a period where we are still trying to come to terms with our humanity and how that matches what we are able to accomplish in, in, in the fields of science. And this is something which I think, I guess, it's worth contemplating about. So connecting the positivity that Carol exhibited for all those 11 years, and I guess the seriousness and the, the humility that we really need to have, Carol, the humility that we all need, but especially humility in, in light of what what man is able to do and to to bring out the best things that we can to be able to marshal these forces, to be able to to live up to the extreme responsibility of being guardians of the planet. There's light to the world. So watch your step on the way out. We'll catch you next time. Be well. Thanks for joining us for another episode from the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss a single episode. 